Australia's military history is more than just a collection of dates and the locations of war-ravaged battlefields. It is the stories of service and sacrifice of those who have answered the call of their country of birth or adoption and the enduring legacy they have created. Join me as we look into one of those stories. I'm your host, Ross Manuel, and welcome to I Was Only Doing My Job, Australia's Military History, a Doc Network podcast. Now let's get started. G'day friends and welcome to episode 52 of the podcast. This episode is the continuation of our contribution to History Talk's Shipwreck Summer Series and is rather timely as Tuesday the 8th of August was the 81st anniversary of the sinking of HMAS Canberra 1 during the Battle of Savo Island, which if you guessed from the title is the topic of today's episode. This episode is also made possible thanks to the generous contribution from a long-term listener to the podcast, who, while they requested a degree of anonymity, holds this episode's special guest director's position with the request on the episode about the legacy of the ship's name Canberra. This was to acknowledge the recent commissioning of a new ship of the name. Fortunately, I had already planned on focusing an episode of Shipwreck Summer on the fate of Canberra 1, and thus this episode was created. Now, if you want to suggest an episode for yourself, the easiest way to do so is to buy the podcast a coffee. Or, as always, you can continue on the conversation in our social channels and join the Armoured Emu Brigade over in our Discord server. As always, the links to everything are on our website. I was also recently informed that I Was Only Doing My Job and Australian Military History Podcast is now ranked third in Feedspot's Top 10 Australian Military History Podcasts of 2023. This is up from fourth from last year. And for that, I want to thank both Feedspot and each and every one of you for your continued support. And with all the announcements now done, let's get underway with this week's episode. The following episode does feature somewhat graphic depictions of medical trauma in war and medical procedures, which may not be suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Kenneth Newman Morris was born on the 21st of March 1917 in Bacchus Marsh, Victoria, to Edgar Gordon Morris, a government dairy supervisor, and Marion Bryce Anderson. Kenneth was the youngest of three children born to the couple as they grew up in Bacchus Marsh before moving to nearby Werribee to attend the Werribee High Elementary School. On the 4th of March 1921, Edgar Gordon Morris would pass away at the age of 35 when Kenneth was just four years old. From 1932 to 1934, he attended Geelong College. While there, he was part of the athletics team in 1932, selected for the first eight in rowing in 34, and served in the college's cadet corps, rising to the rank of cadet corps sergeant. He also served as school prefect in his final year, and he was a joint editor of Pegasus, the school magazine, if there ever was a definite achiever. After graduating from Geelong College in 1935, he attended Melbourne University to study medicine at the prestigious Ormond College. While there, he continued to compete in rowing with the Ormond crew, and also there he demonstrated interest in history when he updated the student's history of the college known as the Blue Book. He would graduate in 1940 and conduct his residency at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. While at the Royal Melbourne, he met a young anaesthetist by the name of Dr. Faye Madison Kingross, and on the 8th of February 1941, the couple announced their engagement and would marry at the St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church Caulfield on the 29th of March. They settled into a duality of wedded bliss in the Melbourne suburb of Kew and professional acclaim as they became a formidable and talented medical team. The following year, with the war in the Pacific raging, on the 9th of February 1942, Kenneth Newman Morris, like many of his contemporaries, joined the armed forces, though for Morris it was joining the Royal Australian Naval Reserve. 
He would report for duty at the Naval Reserve Depot HMAS Lonsdale, and after a period of training at HMAS Cerberus, the primary training facility for naval recruits at the Flinders Naval Depot in Western Port Bay near Melbourne, on the 23rd of February, he was posted to the county-class heavy cruiser HMAS Canberra 1 as a surgeon lieutenant. Canberra, as I mentioned in the life service and legacy of midshipman Robert Ian Davies, was the flagship at the time of the Royal Australian Navy. Canberra was one of two county-class heavy cruisers in the Royal Australian Navy, weighing in at 9,800 tonnes and sporting eight 8-inch guns between 1.5 and 4.5 inches of armour plating, and had a top speed of 31.5 knots and a crew of 815. They were, by far, the most powerful ships in the Australian squadron. When he joined the complement, it was in Sydney Harbour, undergoing an extensive refit that caused it to miss the Battle of Coral Sea on the 4th to the 8th of May. Canberra was, at the time, had a reputation for being a glamour ship, used primarily for ceremonial duties, and as thus had missed any of the fleet actions the rest of the Royal Australian Navy had participated in. And as it was routinely in Australian waters, it also doubled as a training vessel for newly appointed officers and ratings before they were assigned to the rest of the fleet. Now this was to its detriment, because as she had been used primarily for escort duty since the start of the war, a lot of the fleet-wide upgrades, tactics and lessons that modernised the Australian squadron were either not done, not complete, or passed on by the time he joined the crew. Departing Sydney Harbour in mid-May with another convoy bound for Melbourne, Canberra returned to her home port of Sydney. There, she was a familiar sight to the locals, and on the 31st of May, she was at anchor near the United States Navy heavy cruiser USS Chicago on the night of the Japanese midget submarine raid. At dusk, five Japanese fleet submarines rendezvoused outside the heads of Sydney Harbour. Three carried two-person Ko Hayoteki-class midget submarines, and the remaining two were outfitted with Yokosuka E-14Y1 Glen floatplanes. After a reconnaissance flight over the harbour by one of the float planes reported the presence of several capital ships, including, quote, two battleships or large cruisers, five other large warships, several minor war vessels and patrol boats, and prolific merchant shipping, unquote. In the harbour at the time was Canberra and Chicago, which are presumably those battleships, the light cruiser HMAS Adelaide, the destroyer tender USS Dobbin, an auxiliary mine layer HMAS Bungary, the corvettes His Majesty's Australian ships Wyala and Geelong, and HMAS Bombay the armed merchant cruisers HMS Knimbala and HMAS Australia, and the converted ferry HMAS Cuttable, which was serving as a temporary barracks for visiting warships and transferring crews. Considering that blackout protocols weren't in effect, for instance, Sydney's iconic Luna Park was still in operation and the ferry service was still in use, along with the dismal, half-completed harbour defences, Sydney Harbour was the ideal target for the issue-played Co Hayoteki class to launch a raid, and the decision was made to attack it instead of Numea, Suva and Auckland, which had also been scouted as potential targets. The three midget submarines detached from their mother subs before 1720 on the 29th of May, and one after another they entered the harbour. This attack was intended to serve as a diversion against the planned attack on Midway, and hopefully would be enough to convince Allied intelligence agencies that the Japanese were planning a major attack further to the south. Though the midget subs designed for fleet actions and coastal raiding were ill-suited to an attack in established harbour, they were, by the Japanese, routinely used in this role. The first submarine, M14, entered the harbour at 20.01 hours. 15 minutes later, it was spotted after it collided with a pyolite and then became stuck in the harbour's minimal anti-submarine netting. For it could be boarded and captured, its two-man crew, Lieutenant Kensai Kuman and Petty Officer Takeshi Omurai, detonated one of its demolition charges and destroyed the submarine. In doing so, they raised the alarm that the harbour was under attack at 22.37. 
Canberra herself was birthed east of Bennelong Point, the current location of the iconic Sydney Opera House, and was located the furthest away from all other warships, so she didn't actually know what was actually happening. By the contrast, USS Chicago was right in the middle of it, with her lookout sighting the periscope of the second submarine, M24, crewed by Sub-Lieutenant Katsuhisa Ban and Petty Officer Marmurai Ashby illuminated it by searchlights and opened fire, but due to her gun's inability to depress far enough to engage the submarine, these rounds were ineffective. In return, M24 fired its two torpedoes at Chicago. One ran ashore at Garden Island and failed to explode, and the second torpedo missed both the Chicago and the Dutch submarine K9 that were berthed nearby and exploded against the seawall underneath HMAS Cutable, sinking it. In doing so, it killed 19 in the Royal Australian Navy and two Royal Navy sailors that had been asleep and wounding another 10. Some of those aboard, who then did not wake up from their sleep, had survived the sinking of HMS Prince of Wales and Repulse, as was described in episode 50, Unresolved Valour, Midshipman Robert Ian Davies, and the sinking of HMS Prince of Wales and HMS Repulse. M24 then made its way back out of the harbour. The third midget submarine, M21, which historians agree entered the harbour about the same time that Chicago was engaging M24, did not do much better as it was detected almost immediately entering the harbour and was attacked by the now alert harbour defences. It was damaged by depth charges and sank, and at some point in the night, the crew of Lieutenant Q Matsuo and Petty Officer First Class Masao Suzuki took their own lives. Both destroyed submarines would be recovered and the remains of their crews cremated under full military honours in a hoped show of good faith to the Japanese. The wrecks would eventually go on display at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra and the remains would be returned to Japan. M24 would not actually be found until 2006 off the Sydney Heads at a depth of 55 metres below sea level. It is now listed as a war grave and dives on it are heavily restricted. During this whole attack, roughly two-thirds of all members of Canberra's crew weren't even aboard, having been granted night leave, so she was actually unable to join Chicago, who was already putting to sea to hunt the Japanese mother subs. By morning, however, Canberra's complement had been recalled to duty, and within hours, orders had been received, and HMAS Canberra put to sea as part of Task Force 44. She would never return. In June, Canberra was with Task Force 44 alongside the USS Chicago and USS Salt Lake City. For two months following the raid on Sydney Harbour, the task force participated in offensive sweeps of the Coral Sea. This was in part to familiarise each other with the tactics, capabilities and nuances of the two navies. Task Force 44 was a mix of warships of the Royal Australian Navy from the Australian Squadron and the United States Navy as part of General Douglas MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Command. It comprised of the heavy cruisers HMAS Chicago and Salt Lake City, His Majesty's Australian ships Australia and Canberra, the light cruiser HMAS Hobart, and the destroyers USS Perkins, Whippy, Farragut, Wake, Helm, Selfridge, and Patterson. Despite the overwhelming American presence in the task force, it was commanded ostensibly by officers of the Royal Australian Navy, including several that would go into history as some of the best officers produced by the fleet. Due to its role in the Royal Australian Navy as a training vessel, on the 17th of June 1942, Canberra's crew complement was rotated and fresh officers and ratings were brought aboard, including a new commanding officer, Captain Frank Getting. As the ship sailed for Wellington and later Fiji in July, there was a degree of concern amongst the old hands that had stayed with Canberra that the glamour ship of the Royal Australian Navy was, for the first time, going to be sent into battle, and most of the sailors aboard were inexperienced, having only just completed basic training. Some, as Engineering Commander Otto McMahon stated, quote, haven't even started shaving yet, unquote. Now, there was a stark difference between the two Australian county-class cruisers. 
Canberra's sister Australia had seen action since the start of the war against German, Italian and Japanese forces, fought in both hemispheres and had experience serving with foreign navies. While by comparison, Canberra had only been hunting phantom German raiders and had conducted convoy duties in the Indian and South Pacific Oceans. Now that was about to change, as on the 26th of July, Task Force 44 would join Task Force 61 under the command of Vice Admiral Frank Fletcher, United States Navy. Admiral Fletcher was the officer in charge of the Battle of Coral Sea and the participant of the Allied victory at the Battle of Midway. This joining of forces was for the first American counterattack of the Pacific War, the landing of United States Marines on Guadalcanal and Tulagi in the Solomon Islands under the codename Operation Watchtower, otherwise also known as Operation Shoestring by the men who actually fought in it. This would be the first amphibious operation undertaken by the United States military since 1898. The whole operation was designed to deny the Japanese the use of airfields they were constructing on the islands, which would have directly threatened the vital supply lines between the United States and Australia, further isolating Australia from her allies. Conversely, the Allies had aspirations to use those same airfields to launch the recapture of the Solomon Islands, to isolate or capture Rabaul, which had been converted into a major Japanese fleet base in the southwest Pacific, and to provide support for the New Guinea campaign. Intelligence for this landing was collected in part by the men of the Coast Watcher Service at great personal risk. In order to protect the transports supplying the Marines on Guadalcanal and Tulagi, once they had landed, a screening force Task Group 62.2 was formed under the command of British Rear Admiral Sir Victor Alexander Charles Crutchley, VC, KCB, DSC, DL, who had been lent to the Royal Australian Navy to command Task Force 44 with HMAS Canberra serving as his flagship. This force was comprised of three Australian cruisers, five American cruisers, 15 destroyers and five minesweepers. While the ships of Task Force 44 formed the backbone of this task group and thus had some experience serving with each other, the vast majority of the American warships had no experience working with or underneath a officer or ship of another nation, not to mention the vast differences in technology, especially in the terms of radio communication and radar, as well as fleet tactics. This would prove disastrous in the coming days. The initial landings on the 7th of August were met with light resistance that was dealt with thanks to the air support provided by Vice Admiral Fletcher's carriers, the USS Enterprise, Saratoga and Wasp. Almost immediately, Japanese land-based planes were launched from Rabaul to attack the assault forces, but thanks to the Coast Watchers, enough warning was given to the covering aircraft carriers that they were able to keep planes in the air to meet them. This resulted in the warships screening the landings being stuck at first degree of readiness for several days. This level of preparedness necessitated the ship's compartments to be sealed and gun crews to dress in heavy anti-flash gear, goggles, gloves, overalls and helmets, which in the tropical South Pacific would have been unbearable. For those up on the deck or in gun positions, while there was an ever-present danger caused by enemy fire, there was also the slight relief and respite of being able to get fresh air. For those below decks, the engineers, stokers, and medical personnel like Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth Morris, it was claustrophobic, unbearably hot, and there was nothing for them to do but wait. Of Canberra's first engagement, Morris would recall that, quote, you sweat in real earnest because you know that they are just starting to let go their bombs or torpedoes. Imagination left to itself. If one could only see what was going on, things wouldn't be so bad. Swimming out of the pool of perspiration that you've been lying in, relieved always to find that it was only perspiration, and going up on deck to find out if there are any wrecked planes to be seen, unquote. Two successive waves of Japanese aircraft had been destroyed either by the carriers or by the wall of lead being disgorged by the screening force by nightfall. 
Within two hours of the initial landings, the commander of the Imperial Japanese Navy's 8th Fleet, based at Rabaul, Vice Admiral Gunichi Makawa, sailed with a cruiser force comprising of five heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and a destroyer to attack and destroy the landing force. Because he lacked any aircraft carriers of his own, he knew that the only way his force was going to get close to the Allied fleet and have a chance was to travel and to launch his attack at night when the US carriers would not be as much of a factor due to limitations and night fighting capabilities in the age of before radar equipped aircraft. Though that being said, two of his three carriers did have night fighter squadrons. Despite the efforts to avoid detection, Macau's force was detected by Royal Australian Air Force reconnaissance aircraft flying for Milne Bay almost immediately and was reported to their headquarters and a report sent to the screening force. But issues relating to zones of control delayed its arrival. Milne Bay sat within the area of responsibility of General MacArthur's Southwest Pacific Command. However, the Guadalcanal operation fell under the responsibility of Vice Admiral Robert Lee Gornley's South Pacific Area. When the reports did reach the screening force, Macau's fleet was seen reported heading back towards Rabaul, which was an attempt to confuse Allied planes, and as a result, the Americans concluded that the fleet was a standard inter-island transfer and wasn't heading to Guadalcanal. Even with the warnings from RAF Hudson's, Rear Admiral Richmond Turner, who was the officer in charge of the amphibious landing force and Admiral Crutchy's immediate superior, requested Admiral John S. McCain Sr., commander of Allied Air Force's South Pacific Area, to conduct extra reconnaissance missions on the seaward navigational passage known as the Slot. For unexplained reasons, these flights were not undertaken and Turner was not aware of this. He believed the seaward approach was being monitored by aircraft. Though McCain can't take all the blame, Turner had 15 float planes attached to his cruisers that he could have used to maintain his own air presence, but instead left them fueled and stored aboard his ships as a potential fire hazard. Sitting in the middle of the slot sits Savo Island, which splits the seaward approach in two. As a result, Crutchley was forced to split his group to have His Majesty's Australian ships Australian Canberra, along with the US cruiser USS Chicago and the destroyers USS Bagley and Patterson on the southern side close to Guadalcanal, and to the northern side of Savo Island was the U.S. cruisers USS Vincennes, Astoria, and Quincy, along with the destroyers USS Helm and Wilson covering Tulagi. The light cruisers HMAS Hobart and USS San Juan, and the destroyers USS Monson and Buchanan, patrolled the space between Tulagi and Guadalcanal to hunt for submarines and small surface vessels that managed to slip through the main screening forces. Patrolling both approaches ahead of the two screening units were radar-equipped U.S. destroyers USS Ralph Talbot and USS Blue. On the night of the 8th of August, Admiral Crutchley ordered his ships to adopt a night disposition and to commence patrols. His instructions were that in case of a night attack, each cruiser group was to act independently but also was to support each other as required. This arrangement was to cause some confusion during the upcoming engagement. Crutchley's reason for this was due to that degree of familiarity I alluded to earlier. Australia, Canberra and Chicago at least had partial experience operating together at night under Crutchley's command, while Vincennes, Astoria and Quincy were relatively unknown to him, which meant that if the units were engaged, he felt confident that he could command the ships he knew and left the other ships to the command of Captain Frederick Lewis Rifkoll, the senior officer attached to USS Vincennes. The other reason for this split in the orders was that Australia and Canberra were not equipped with the device known as TBS, or Talking Between Ships. TBS was a shipboard radio telephone which was installed on all US Navy warships and allowed real-time voice communication. If messages needed to be conveyed to vessels of the Royal Australian Navy at the time, signal lamps or semaphore flags would have to be used for close range. This would have delayed any tactical operations as the US Navy ships were not trained to convey messages this way. 
Crutchley then ordered that all ships remain at a first degree of readiness, except with the modification that, quote, small numbers may in turn be sent from their quarters to get meals, unquote. Interestingly, though, on Canberra, the ship's intercom piped second degree of readiness, which permitted half of the crew to leave their battle stations to get sleep or a hot meal, and left only half of the ship's damage control teams and gun crews at their posts. The ship's float plane was defueled and all the ship's armaments were unloaded. Interestingly, though, in my research on what happened next, Canberra is routinely singled out for doing this, though I did see the occasional reference of it being done on other ships in the task force as well. What happened next can only be described as a continuance of a succession of catastrophic blunders. At 2030, Crutchley was summoned to a conference with Rear Admiral Richmond Turner, the commander of the amphibious fleet. The reason for this conference was to discuss Admiral Fletcher's plan to withdraw his carriers due to low fuel reserves and that 20 of his carriers' 99 fighters had already been destroyed or damaged. Under normal circumstances, Crotsley would have taken his Admiral's barge to make the journey, but due to the time and the fact that he'd be out of communication with his task group during the transit, he made the questionable decision to have his current flagship, Australia, be used as the transport, to take him to the transport anchorage. That meant that neither he nor Australia would be in position when Admiral Macau's force was making their approach to Savo Island unseen. The absence of Australia from the Southern Australian Force also caused flow-on problems as Crutchley had ordered Commanding Officer of the USS Chicago, Captain Howard Bode, who was the Senior Cruiser Commander, to take command of the Southern Force. But unfortunately, he also neglected to inform the commanders of the other two cruiser groups that he and Australia would not be in the line. Now, traditionally, the senior commander would lead a flotilla force to direct the course of a naval engagement, but Bode, who had been wakened with the news that he was now in charge, but also led to believe there was no Japanese service vessels nearby and the Japanese air attacks had ceased for the day, did not instruct his officer of the watch to position Chicago ahead of Canberra and promptly went back to sleep. His argument was that such a maneuver at night was dangerous and that Crotchley would be back before dawn, thus necessitating another dangerous change of position. As this happened, Macau's force, unfortunately, was able to exploit an unexpected weakness of the Allied naval radar. At the time, they were directional, meaning they only worked within a set direction and had operational issues when used near land masses. His force actually managed to slip unseen within 16 kilometers of the USS Ralph Talbot and was less than 2 kilometers from the USS Blue. At the same time, Crutchley was steaming towards the transport anchorage, Macau ordered float planes to be launched from the cruisers of his force, which were heard by the screening force but not acted on, as they hadn't been on the raid on Sydney Harbour. At 0130, HMAS Canberra and the Southern Screening Force was sighted, and almost immediately signal flares from those float planes were dropped, illuminating Canberra and Chicago. At 0143, the USS Patterson sighted Macau's force and raised the alarm by radio and signal app. Quote, warning, warning, strange ships entering the harbour, unquote. Macau in turn ordered the ships of his force to, quote, every ship attack, unquote. The Japanese ships opened with a barrage of cannons and torpedoes. Captain Getting came running to the bridge from his quarters where he'd been resting and ordered an immediate increase in speed, skillfully piloting the ship to avoid 19 incoming torpedoes within the opening two minutes. Within a minute of the engagement commencing, Canberra's guns took aim at the oncoming Japanese cruisers. However, the Japanese were quicker on the draw, with the two lead heavy cruisers Shokai and Furutaka opening fire, scoring numerous direct hits within seconds. This was followed up by the cruisers Oba and Keiko following broadsides. The accuracy of this fire was immediate and devastating, with the bridge knocked down in the initial salvo, killing her gunnery officer and mortally wounding Captain Getting. Canberra took 28 direct hits in three minutes before her guns could respond, 
but could at most count for one or two salvos before they were silenced. For Morris, who'd been getting some shut-eye in the mess which was his action station, the ship's alarm roused him. As he was in the process of pulling on his overalls, the first wounded sailors started staggering in, much to his surprise, as he wasn't even aware they had been hit. He reflected in a letter recounting the event. Quote, The screams of the wounded. The first casualty appeared with his left arm shot away. A tourniquet had been adjusted and morphia injected to him and three other casualties when the lights failed and all water supplies were cut off. From then on, it became necessary for members of the first aid party to use their initiative, unquote. The second salvo from the Japanese heavy cruisers focused their attention on Canberra, destroying both boiler rooms, knocking out power, water and communications throughout the ship. Immediately, she slowed to a halt, was on fire, and had a 10-degree list to starboard. Like Prince of Wales, with no power running to pumps and generators, she couldn't put out the numerous fires or drain flooded compartments. The worst part of this was that when Getting received word of the Japanese surface ships, he immediately ordered Canberra to keep her port side to them, putting the ship between them and the transports in the harbour. Because of this, the vast majority of hits were on that side. Japanese forces stayed to Canberra's port during the engagement. However, there was a single devastating strike to her starboard side that allegedly came from a torpedo fired from the destroyer USS Bagley. The torpedo penetrated a boiler room and exploded. This was the killer blow. While the Board of Inquiry conveyed within weeks of the battle exonerated Bagley of any involvement, survivors from Canberra, historians and writers about the battle, generally dismissed the findings of this inquiry, and several have been campaigning to have its actual results overturned. Regardless of where the crippling blow came from, Morris continued to treat the wounded now in the dark. Fortunately, he had a portable torch that could be fitted on a headband, which allowed him to continue working and assess the situation, but he went to work instructing the stewards, cooks, and any volunteers that came by to save their brother sailors. The Japanese onslaught was relentless, and successive broadsides pummeled the ship, penetrating the hull and detonating within. And it was here that Canberra's history of being a glamour ship came back to haunt her. Due to the prestige of being a ship used for ceremonies, a lot of furniture and panelling throughout the ship was made of Australian timbers. Most of these could not be fireproofed, and also it possessed successive layers of paint, something that was generally not present in combat vessels, but an ideal way to serve as a backdrop for photos. These luxuries suddenly and inexplicably ignited, sending gouts of flame and choking smoke through the lower decks. Under normal circumstances, it was customary for warships to jettison or lock down anything flammable to prevent this from happening. Just before we continue, here's a word from one of our sponsors. This episode was made possible thanks to the generous support from our backers, whose donations go towards paying for distribution and streaming costs, the digitization and procurement of records, as well as everything else that goes into making a podcast. And if you enjoy what we do here at I Was Only Doing My Job and want to support the podcast directly and get some sweet rewards in the process... Follow the link in the episode description or visit our website to buy the podcast a coffee, either as a one-off or as an ongoing subscription. At the lowest tiers, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, and at higher tiers, you'll get a mention in the episode and even the ability to suggest future topics. For more information, check the link in the episode description or check out www.thedocnetwork.net. And now, let's get back to the show. Of the rest of the Southern Screening Force, Bagley took no further role. Patterson, the destroyer who raised the alarm too late to do anything, fired star shells to illuminate the Japanese force before turning hard to engage the oncoming Japanese. There is one constant in the Pacific campaign, it was American destroyers constantly fighting above their weight class. 
Commander Walker of the Patterson ordered his ship to engage the Japanese cruisers, and this was even after watching Canberra become a burning wreck at their hand. Disgorging volleys of 5-inch shells from her four gun mounts at the Japanese, she instantly became the focus of the retaliatory fire. This actually knocked out one of her 5-inch guns, but didn't keep her out of the fight, as she fired over 50 5-inch shells in the 10 minutes the southern force was engaged. Chicago was just unaware of what was happening as Canberra was. Captain Bird watched Canberra turn to starboard and then gave the order to follow, until she saw the wakes of the torpedoes in the water. Immediately ordering hard over to port, she was clipped by a torpedo. Then, for unknown reasons, Chicago proceeded to the west, heading in the opposite direction of the attacking Japanese. Historians and writers of this battle have not been kind to Captain Bode in this regard, declaring that this erratic decision came from him losing his nerve or, due simply, due to cowardice. The single biggest indictment, however, was that as senior commander, it fell to Captain Bode to inform Admirals Crutchley and Turner that the Japanese had attacked and his force had been mauled. It also fell to him to give sufficient warning to the northern force, warning them of the incoming Japanese. Neither of these warnings occurred, and Chicago simply vanished from the battle for 40 minutes. Emboldened by this success, Makawa ordered his force to steam northeast to engage the north screening force, while being chased by Patterson. While the Japanese steamed away, the order to prepare to abandon the Canberra had been given, and Morris made his way up to the deck with the wounded under his care. Within 50 minutes of arriving, it apparently started raining, which only compounded the problems. As the crew waited for the order to abandon ship, Morris found himself with more casualties to treat. These, however, wore different blue uniforms to the bows of the bulk of the crew. Due to the disbandment of the first iteration of the Royal Australian Navy's fleet air arm in 1928, all aircraft used aboard Royal Australian Navy warships were actually crewed, maintained and operated by members of the Royal Australian Air Force. The Air Force pilots and crews who operated the Supermarine Seagull seaplane berthed aboard had been devastated when a Japanese shell exploded within the RAF mess facilities. He tended to their wounds beneath the burning skeleton of the Seagull. Using his head torch, he kept a wary eye on the flames above him as they made their way across the wings and towards the four 100-pound bombs still attached. At one point, the wings separated from the fuselage, but didn't fall enough to allow the bombs to detonate. But, in Morris's own words, quote, I moved off with rare speed, unquote. While he and the other medical attendants tried to keep the wounded alive until help could arrive, they played a macabre game of hide-and-seek, though the seeker was the ship's four-inch ammunition being stored in ready-use lockers on the deck. As fires reached one of these lockers, everyone dived behind the nearest cover, be it coils of rope or now inactive gun turrets. Morris vividly recalls the carnage around him in his letter. Quote, There was some pretty grim stuff also. Trunks without limbs, heads without bodies, etc. One poor devil with his belly walls split open, saying as everyone passed, Don't tread on me guts. Unquote. The northern force fared no better than its southern contemporary. Also being caught unaware, they were mauled by the Japanese fleet, with the USS Vincennes sinking at 0250, Quincy at 0238. Astoria shared an identical fate to Canberra, floating but dead in the water, until a magazine explosion would sink her the following day. Admiral Makawa, his fleet spread across the slot and lacking any air cover, with most of their ready ordnance expended, conveyed with his staff to see if it was worth the risk of to push further into the anchorages to attack the transports or take the win and withdraw. His main obstacles was the knowledge that the American carriers were still in the area, though he was unaware they had already been withdrawn, and that he did not know the locations and dispositions of any other Allied warships that might have missed the initial battle. The consensus was decided to retire back to Rabaul, and it was all over by 0220. 
At 0325, a destroyer approached Canberra, but as she was dead in the water and had no means of communicating, to the relief of her crew, when the destroyer cast lines, connecting the two ships, they found that it was the USS Patterson. Herself damaged from the engagement where she fought a running battle with the Japanese cruisers, she returned to Canberra to render aid. Hoses and pumps were brought aboard, and as the wounded were transferred off the ship, the crew started to believe that Canberra could be saved. That was, of course, until they discovered that the American hoses couldn't connect to Australian couplings, and without any water pressure, bucket brigades had to be used. I can only imagine the measured and calm way that information was relayed. As Patterson herself had taken casualties, a request was made for medical assistance to go aboard. Morris and Canberra's surgeon commander went over. Morris reflected, quote, Things had been pretty poor on Canberra, but I think that was even worse on the destroyer, owing to the crowding. At one stage, I found myself giving plasma infusions in the seamen's bathrooms, unquote. As the wounded were being evacuated and damage control teams went to work, at 04.30, Patterson cut lines and steamed away with the message of, quote, we'll be back, unquote. Their radar had picked up an approaching object that potentially could have been hostile. After the battle, Commander Walker, Patterson's commanding officer, wrote to Admiral Crutchley, quote, The commanding officer and entire ship's company of USS Patterson noted with admiration the calm, cheerful and courageous spirit displayed by officers and men of Canberra. When Patterson left from alongside because of what was then believed to be an enemy ship close by, there was no outcries or entreaties. Rather a cheery, carry on Patterson, good luck, and prompt and efficient casting off of lines, brows, etc., not a man stepped out of line. The Patterson feels privileged to have served with so gallant a crew, unquote. As Patterson again showed that bulldog determination, she steamed towards the unknown ship. Before her, a cruiser appeared in the mist and started shelling the two vessels. As the wounded and helpless crews tried to take what cover they could, it was discovered, to the horror of the compliment, that their attacker was the USS Chicago. Nervous gunners had jumped the gun, so to speak, and attacked at a shape in the water. That shape happened to be Canberra and Patterson. The evacuation resumed with the assistance of the destroyer USS Blue. By midday on the 9th, Morris and the wounded had been transferred to one of the empty troop transports for the slow journey back to Numea, where he and seven other doctors tended to the wounds of over 200 Australian and American casualties. Quote, The surgeon commander gave the anaesthetics mostly intravenous inductions followed by ether when necessary, and the other surgeon lieutenant and I took in turns to assist each other operate. We knocked off at midnight for five hours sleep and then went on again until midnight the next night, by which time every casualty had been attended to once. It took us seven days to reach the nearest port, and although the work became increasingly light, we weren't exactly working union hours. For theatre attendants, nurses, etc., we had a varied selection of cooks, stewards, stokers, and seamen, who, although they were a menace for a while, were so keen for, to be of use, they soon became a tower of strength, unquote. For Canberra, however, her time was running out. As reflected on by able seaman Henry Hall, quote, Our once proud ship was but a sinking scrap heap. We had been hit everywhere. The after control and directors were masses of twisted steel. The four-inch gun decks were a shambles. The amphibian was but a skeleton. The superstructure was only a mass of twisted steel. All upper works were merely a mess of torn steel work. Decks and sides were ripped and torn. Jagged holes everywhere, unquote. Once Crutchley and Turner had actually been appraised of what had happened well after the battle was over, Patterson and Blue arrived to evacuate the wounded, and with them, they carried with them the orders that Turner wanted to withdraw. While the fires on Canberra had more or less been brought under control, 
The orders were simple. If she was not able to make steam by 0630, she had to be abandoned and scuttled. When the time came, however, there was a delay. As while the ship was now heavily listing 20 degrees and still smouldering, the crew of Canberra refused to leave until all of their wounded brothers had been recovered. At 0640, the destroyer USS Selfridge arrived with orders to sink Canberra. Patterson and Blue, having retired to save the crew of Canberra, them seeing their beloved ship in such a state. But the ship from whom Australia's capital shares her name refused to go quietly into the dawn. Selfridge had to expend 263 rounds of 5-inch ammunition and 4 torpedoes and still failed to do what the Japanese couldn't do the night before. Her coup de grace came from the form of a torpedo fired from the USS Ellet. His Majesty's Australian ship Canberra, flagship of the Royal Australian Navy and the Australian Squadron, rolled over to starboard and never to see another forenoon watch sank by the bow at exactly 8am, or roughly two hours after she was actually supposed to have been scuttled, and roughly seven hours after she was first struck by the Shokai. Despite the best efforts of surgeons like Kenneth Morris and the medical transport USS Barnett, nothing could be done to save Captain Frank Getting, who succumbed to his wounds and was buried at sea at the age of 43. He was the third Australian cruiser captain to die in the war, and the third from the first intake of the Royal Australian Naval College. The other two were Captain Joseph Burnett of HMAS Sydney 2, whose sinking was the focus of the formerly unknown Australian soldier, episode 44, and Captain Hector MacDonald Law's Waller of HMAS Perth, covered in episode 24. Getting joined nine other officers and 76 ratings who were killed in action or died of wounds shortly afterwards. In total, the combined Australian-United States fleet suffered three U.S. heavy cruisers sunk, one Australian heavy cruiser sunk, and 1,077 officers, sailors, and ratings killed. It is still considered the worst naval defeat in the United States history, second only to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Because 57 warships littered the sea floor from not only the Battle of Savo Island, but the subsequent naval engagements for the Solomon Islands and Guadalcanal, the area is now known as Iron Bottom Sound. Canberra's wreck would be rediscovered by retired U.S. Navy officer Robert Dwayne Ballard in July and August 1992, roughly 50 years after her scuttling. She lies upright on the ocean floor at a depth of 760 metres below sea level. As if frozen in time, her turrets are still aimed at port, lying silent sentinel to protect the entrance of the anchorage even in death. In the United States, the Battle of Savo Island was met with outrage in the American media, how did three U.S. heavy cruisers sink in rapid succession? Why was there an English naval officer in charge? Who was to blame? A formal U.S. Navy Board of Inquiry, known as the Hepburn Investigation, named after Admiral Arthur J. Hepburn, United States Navy retired, prepared a report on the battle after interviewing most of the major Allied officers involved over a period of several months, starting in December. The findings were... The primary cause of defeat was a complete surprise achieved by the Japanese. The reasons for the surprise were, one, inadequate conditioning of readiness on all ships to meet sudden night attack, two, failure to recognize the implication of enemy planes in the vicinity prior to the attack, three, misplaced confidence in the capabilities of Radar and Blue and Ralph Talbot, four, failure in communications which resulted in a lack of timely receipt of vital enemy contact information, 5. Failure to communications to give timely information of the fact that there had been practically no effective reconnaissance covering the enemy approach during 2nd August. Finally, Hepburn noted, quote, As a contributory cause, it must be placed the withdrawal of the carrier group by Fletcher on the evening before the battle, unquote. The report recommended official censure for only one officer, Captain Bode, for failing to broadcast a warning of approaching Japanese ships. 
The report stopped short of recommending formal action against other Allied officers, including Fletcher, Turner, McCain, Crutchley and Rakoff. The careers of Turner, Crutchley and McCain seem to not have been adversely affected by the defeat or the mistakes they made in contributing to it. Reef Cole never again commanded a ship. The Battle of Savo Island would go on to claim one more life. On learning that the report was going to be especially critical of his actions, the commanding officer of USS Chicago, Captain Bode, took his own life in his quarters in Balboa, Panama Canal Zone on the 19th of July, 1943. He would pass away the following day. He was 54. The Australian Commonwealth Naval Board conducted two of its own inquiries into the loss of Canberra specifically, during which criticisms were raised about the preparations of the ship, the corners cut, upgrades overlooked, and layers of paint and other accelerants that had not been removed. The other criticism came from the ship's role as a training ship meant that the experienced sailors were routinely replaced by green recruits. The inquiry failed to find any responsibility or blame to the sinking, only finding trivialities as justification. The second inquiry was the one I mentioned earlier, and it focused entirely on whether USS Bagley fired on Canberra. For Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth Morris, his war did not end with the sinking of HMAS Canberra, though for his actions during the battle, he was mentioned in dispatches. The recommendation read for, quote, skill, resolution, and coolness in operations in the Solomon Islands, unquote. He would be reassigned once more to the training depot HMAS Lonsdale from the 10th of August until the 15th of May 1943, when he was then assigned to the destroyer HMAS Nepal. From there, he would continue to serve aboard a number of vessels and shore installations until he was demobilized on the 30th of October 1945, when he was offered the position of surgical registrar at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. He then travelled to Guy's Hospital London to study a Master of Surgery. At the end of the Second World War, the Morris family would also expand to include two children, Graham and Margaret. In 1949, Morris was appointed to the Alfred Hospital, joining the Thoracic Surgery Unit under Sir James Officer Brown. While there, Morris trained in cardiac surgery. This was soon followed by an appointment to the Austin Hospital in both 1950 and 51, which at the time was known as the Hospital for Incurable Diseases. While there, he trained others in the developments of thoracic surgery. In 1954, Morris took charge of the Cardiac Surgical Development Unit at the Alfred Hospital, which is to, to this date, the premier teaching hospital in Victoria. And he worked once more then with his wife, Dr. Faye Kinross. The couple, at the urging of Officer Brown, travelled the world to visit other medical research centres and hospitals to learn the latest developments and work to convince the Alfred Hospital to open its own open-heart surgical unit in 1957. The couple went so far as to develop and build a heart-lung machine after the specially imported machines from the United States were deemed unsuitable. A heart-lung machine, otherwise known as a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, it's a core piece of equipment in cardiac surgery as it takes the blood circulating through the patient's body and oxygenates it, taking over the functions of the heart and lungs. This device was used in March of that year when the first open heart surgery in Australia was performed by Dr. Morris and Dr. Kinross on a boy with a, with a ventricular septal defect, in layman's term, a hole in the heart. It was well documented that Morris fostered an impressive happy team of the Alfred until 1971, at the height of his surgical career, at the age of 54, Morris resigned from the Alfred Hospital and moved to Bass in southeastern Victoria to take up cattle breeding. While there, he also returned to one of his earlier interests, local history. In 1980, the Morrises moved to New Haven, and there he authored the history of New Haven College, entitled Our School by the Sea. 
He would briefly return to the medical field, working at a practice from 1976 until 1988. He also became president of the Bass Valley Historical Society and wrote a number of books and pamphlets about local history. The first in 1983, titled The Andersons of Western Port, whose full title is the multi-lined The Andersons of Western Port, The Discovery and Exploration of Western Port, Victoria, and the Life of the Surfer Settler in Eastern Victoria, Samuel Anderson and his two brothers, Hugh and Thomas, from 1797 to 1903. This was followed by a second book, The Examination of the Explorer George Bass in George Bass in Western Port, incorporating George Bass and the Convicts, published in 1997. Sadly, that same year, Dr. Fay Manderson Morris passed away on the 14th of August, 1997. On the 26th of March, 2001, Surgeon Lieutenant Dr. Kenneth Newman Morris, MID, would pass away at the age of 84. He would be reunited with his wife Fay at the, at the Temple Stove Cemetery in Manningham. The couple is survived by their children, Graham and Margaret, and their grandchildren, Victoria, James, and Thomas. The legacy of HMAS Canberra does not end with her sinking during the Battle of Savo Island. In recognition for her loss in support of U.S. Marines, the President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ordered the Baltimore-class heavy cruiser USS Pittsburgh, then under construction, to be renamed USS Canberra. This in itself was quite an honour, as she would be the first and only ship to serve in the United States Navy named in honour of a foreign warship named for a foreign capital city. To replace Canberra in the Royal Australian Navy, on the 15th of September 1942, the Royal Navy gifted the Australian Navy the HMS Shropshire, and it had the approval of King George VI to rename her HMAS Canberra. That was of course until it was discovered that the United States Navy was already honouring Canberra that way, and having a duplication of names was against the Royal Australian Naval Policy, with some of the crew of Shropshire feeling it bad luck to rename the ship after a recently sunk vessel. USS Canberra would be christened at launch on the 19th of April 1943, the same day the Hepburn Report was released. She was christened by Lady Alice Dixon, the wife of the Australian Minister to Washington, Sir Owen Dixon, and commissioned on the 14th of October 1943 with Captain A.R. Early in command. USS Canberra would go on to receive seven battle stars for her service during the Second World War, including the involvement in the attacks on Truk, Marcus and Wake Islands, and the Battle of the Philippine Sea. She was then struck by an airdrop torpedo that knocked her out of action until the end of the war. Fortunately for this Canberra, and the legacy of that name, she was able to return to port for repairs. Interestingly though, it seems that USS Canberra never served directly alongside any Royal Australian naval vessels during the Second World War. Decommissioned in 1947, she would go on to have a second life in January 1952, after being refitted as a guided missile cruiser. She would leave an additional mark on history for being the site of the ceremony to select the United States Unknown Soldier representing the Second World War. She participated in the Cuban Missile Crisis and would again serve in the Vietnam War, receiving four campaign stars and serving on the gun line alongside vessels of the Royal Australian Navy. She would be decommissioned for a second and final time on the 2nd of February 1970, stricken from the Naval Register on the 31st of July 1978, and broken up on the 1st of August 1980. While US law normally prohibits the possession of naval artifacts by other nations, the USS Canberra's Bell was gifted by President George W. Bush Jr. to Australian Prime Minister John Howard on the 10th of September 2001. It now resides in the USA Gallery of the Australian National Maritime Museum in Sydney. As USS Canberra was being broken up, symbolically her spirit continued 1,053 kilometres away, 
with the launch of HMAS Canberra 2 in Seattle, Washington. HMAS Canberra 2 was one of six Adelaide-class guided missile frigates commissioned into the Royal Australian Navy. She was launched on the 1st of December 1978 and commissioned on the 21st of March 1981. Serving with distinction, HMAS Canberra's first operational deployment was in 1992, enforcing the United Nations Security Council's sanctions against Iraq. She would then also support the International Peace Monitoring Team during the Solomon Islands Civil War in 2000, and her last operational deployment was in 2002, where she joined the Coalition Fleet in the Persian Gulf in support of the International Coalition Against Terrorism as a part of Operation Slipper. She would be decommissioned on the 12th of November 2005 and sunk as a dive wreck off Ocean Grove in Victoria in 2006. Three years later, in 2009, the 3rd HMAS Canberra, the first of the Canberra-class landing helicopter dock ships, was laid down and commissioned on 28th of November 2014. Her first deployment was to Fiji following Tropical Cyclone Pam in February 2016. I also happened to be in Fiji during that time on holiday, and one thing I can remember is seeing Canberra sitting at anchor and the locals thankful for her assistance. As of recording, she is still very much active, having inherited five battle honours from her predecessors. Recall how I mentioned that USS Canberra was the only ship to have served in the US Navy to be named after a foreign ship named after a foreign city? Well, on the 22nd of July 2023, USS Canberra LCS-30, an Independence-class littoral combat ship, was commissioned at Garden Island in Sydney in the shadow of her much larger cousin, HMAS Canberra. Seriously, HMAS Canberra is 230.82 metres long, while USS Canberra is 127.4. Her commissioning was historic in that it was the first vessel of the United States Navy commissioned outside the United States in a foreign port. The following day, the two Canberras exercised the ceremonial freedom of entry to the city that both share their name. Though officially, USS Canberra is named after HMAS Canberra 1. HMAS Canberra 3 is named after the city. Now, it also would seem that the Royal Australian Navy has shifted its stance on having duplication of ship names. And that, my friends, concludes the life, service, and legacy of Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth Newman Morris and the legacy of the ships named Canberra. For his heroic actions during the Battle of Savo Island, tending to wounded sailors, to his groundbreaking contributions to cardiac surgery and medical advancements, Kenneth Morris left an indelible mark on history, and for that, we are, as a society, are internally grateful. Catch you next time, friends, for the conclusion of our contribution to the History Talks Shipwreck Summer Series. Works cited in this episode are Australia in the War of 1939-1945, Series 2, Navy, Volume 2, commemorating the Battle of Savo Island by the Australian Department of Defence, the Australian Navy Institute's podcast episode 10 of Season 2, Battle of Savo Island. I personally recommend giving that one a listen as it goes into much more detail than I can on this topic. Battle of Savo Island from Operations and Codenames of World War II. The Shriner Remembrance's talk on the Battle of Savo Island. The Battle of Savo Island was America's worst naval defeat by Rudy Cano. The United States Naval Historical Heritage Command webpages of the USS Canberra 1, CA-70, CAG-2. The Battle of Savo Island and the Battle of Eastern Solomon's 50th Anniversary Edition by the United States Naval History and Heritage Command. Flagship, the cruiser HMAS Australia by Mike Carlton. The biographical entry on Kenneth Newman Morris by the Australian Medical Association. The Department of Veterans Affairs article on Savo Island. Disaster at Savo Island, 1942 by Lieutenant Colonel D. Quantock, U.S. Army War College. HMAS Canberra Battle of Savo Island by R. Greystone. 
Report of informal inquiry into the circumstances attending to the loss of USS Vincennes, USS Quincy, USS Astoria, and HMAS Canberra on 9th August 1942 in the vicinity of Sava Island, Solomon Islands, by Admiral Arthur J. Hepburn and the Office of the Chief Naval Operations, aka the Hepburn Report. Yes, I read all 600 pages. Collins of the Sydney, A Life of a Vice Admiral, Sir John Collins, KBE, CBRAN, 1899-1989, by A. McDougall. The Australian War Memorial's website entries on Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth N. Morris and the sinking of HMAS Canberra in the Battle of Savo Island. The Royal Australian Navy web pages on the Battle of Savo Island, loss of HMAS Canberra 1. The pages of HMAS Canberra 1, 2, and 3. The page on the Japanese midget submarine attack on Sydney Harbour. HMAS Canberra, Casualty of Circumstance by Catherine Sperling. The U.S. Navy Institute's journal on talking between ships and the Battle of Savo Island. The Battle of Savo Island, August 9, 1942, Strategical and Tactical Analysis, 1950, by the U.S. Naval War College. The Newspaper Archive Trove, by the National Library of Australia. The Service Record of Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth Newman Morris. The Ship's History of USS Canberra, from USSCanberra.com. The Obituary of Kenneth Newman Morris, from the Herald Sun, dated 26th of March, 2001. Pioneering Nature of the Alfred Lives On, and Brian Looks Back on a Life and Life, released by the Alfred Hospital. An extract from a letter written by Surgeon Lieutenant Kenneth N. Morris to a medical colleague following the sinking of HMAS Canberra, August 9, 1942, from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. Thanks for listening to the I Was Only Doing My Job Australia's Military History Podcast, a Doc Network production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gangdangara people whose elders have passed on knowledge for thousands of years, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was written, researched, produced, directed, and audio engineered by me, Ross, with additional research done by Laurie Favell of My Silent Hero. If you do know someone whose story needs to be told, feel free to leave a comment on an episode or send us an email at IWasOnlyDoingMyJobPod at gmail.com. If you like what we do here and you want to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is share this with a friend or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform as it really helps others find the show. And if you want to join in on the conversation, join us over on Discord. And if you want more content, including show notes, photos, transcripts, and my various adventures finding memorials dotted around Australia, head over to our website at www.thedocnetwork.net and follow the show on all our social media pages at IWODMJ. Don't worry, there are links to everything in the show notes. Join me personally for more bite-sized history over on TikTok and pretty much everywhere else at Doc Winters. All opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of any entity, agency, or organization. It is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye.